0: If you're new with us this morning, you are diving into the middle of a series in the Gospel of John. Uh, And I can't catch you all up, but we are wrapping up uh, John chapter 7 today. So I want to set the stage for this discussion by actually first taking your minds back to chapter 4. And I looked it up. That's back to February when we were, I think I was still preaching into a camera uh, in the Oak Hill studio. And man, I don't want to go back there. Um, But back to the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. I know we spent a lot of time there. Back to when Jesus talked to this woman at the very famous Jacob's well in the town of Sukkar. And um, you might recall that Jesus came to the well and, and then she walked up and Jesus asked for a drink of water. That was a very unusual thing to do. And so this woman being a Samaritan balked at doing such a thing for a Jewish man. And here's what Jesus said to her. He said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. I love that. You would have asked him and he would have given you what? Living water. If you would have asked, if you knew who I was, if you knew why I'm here, you would have asked and I would have given you living water. And back then we we looked at what living water means. First, physically, it means moving water, right? Right? Water that comes from a spring or a fountain as opposed to water that is sitting in a, uh, collected in a cistern or sitting sort of stale at the bottom of a well. And we saw how God used that type of imagery to rebuke his own people through the prophet Jeremiah. Here's what God said, my people have committed two sins. One, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And two, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water that friends describes the human condition people first of all rejecting the living water that originates with god and then second going their own way seeking their own path to fulfillment and salvation which will in the end fail them because whatever they build is going to have cracks in it and it cannot hold water then we saw how the bible's filled with all kinds of water imagery streams and rivers and fountains symbols of life symbols of refreshment and renewal that come from the hand of god As Jesus said to that Samaritan woman, the water that I give will become in him, in a person, a fountain of water welling up to eternal life. So this was an offer to come and to drink from this fountain of life, to find salvation and satisfaction, both. Salvation and satisfaction in an abiding relationship with the living God. So that is our launching point now as we move forward to chapter 7. We're going to hear some of the very same language. So grab your Bibles, let's turn there. John chapter 7, look for verse 37. So last week we were reading about this amazing scene in the temple courts in Jerusalem. The crowd is listening to Jesus teach in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. And in particular, we took note of The confusion among the crowd all this wide variety of opinions about who jesus is and all this confusion that was going on there were there were local people there from jerusalem listening there were pilgrims from all over the ancient world who had come for the feast they were there and of course there were the villains in the story right the religious authorities who were skulking in the back listening very carefully to everything jesus said and now we pick up the narrative in verse 37 since that time a few days have passed And Jesus is back in the temple now, and the crowds once again have gathered around him. Verse 37 says this, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, and we'll come back to that in a second, Jesus stood and cried out. Last week we looked at that verb for cried out. It's kradzo, and it refers to a loud emotional plea. So Jesus stands up and he raises his voice so that everyone will hear. And he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, that sounds very much like the invitation that he had given to the woman at the well, right? Ask, and I'll give you living water. Here we see, come to me and drink. Now, I'm going to pause there for a moment. Um, I have hesitated over the last few weeks to dive into in detail the meaning and the background of the feast of tabernacles and for a historical nerd like me this has been very hard i've been patient but today is the day that we have to look at this and here's why because what jesus just said there in verses 37 and 38 have everything to do with the symbols that go along with the feast of tabernacles this is just one of those times and there are many in scripture where 2,000 years later and in a land far away from israel Without context, we just don't fully understand what's going on. So we need to take the time to talk about it. There's, a first of all, a whole litany of names that go with this feast. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's called the Feast of Booths. It's called the Feast of Shelter. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Ingathering. And even in Israel today, it's often referred to as the season of our rejoicing. It's first commanded by God in Leviticus 23. Let me put some of the words on the screen. Leviticus 23, where the Lord spoke to Moses... And he said, tell the Israelites the festival of booths to the Lord begins on the 15th day of this seventh month and continues for seven days. After you've gathered the produce of the land. This is a permanent statue for you throughout your generations. You are to live in shelters for seven days. So that your generations may know that I made the Israelites live in shelters when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this still goes on today. Whether it's it's jews in america or in the west who are, are are keeping up with the high holidays or if you go to israel it is widely celebrated in fact this is i just gave wanted to give you some pictures these are the types of booths that jews even today build in their backyards all over israel they put up these temporary shelters often with palm fronds and all kinds of natural materials and although they're they're called to live in them most of them just go in there for meals <laughs> they're sort of cheating the, you know, cheating the system a little bit, but they're, they're designed to be lived in. That's the original intention of, of the command. So you saw that. I'll just leave that up there, and you can, you can look at it. Um, so in the original command of Leviticus 23, you heard two purposes for this feast. Number one, there was a reference to the produce of the land. So tabernacles is a feast of thanksgiving to God, first and foremost, for his provision of the rain, We forget that Israel is an agricultural society. Without rain, they're in trouble. So thanking God for the rain and for the fall harvest, mainly figs and olives and grapes and pomegranates at that period of time. And then second, it's a reminder of how God cared for and provided for Moses and the Israelites during those wilderness wanderings when he provided, first of all, manna from heaven and then water from the rock. And it's that water that becomes very important in the Feast of Tabernacles and in our story in John 7. You remember the story back in Exodus 17, the Israelites had, had escaped from Egypt and they were in the wilderness of Zin and they, then they traveled into this, to this place called Rephidim and the people camped there, but they were so thirsty, they thought they would die. And so they began to grumble against Moses as they were want to be, right? They grumbled against Moses, they demanded that he produce water and as the story goes, Moses goes to speak with the Lord and he says, Lord, what do I do with these people? <laughs> yeah, and God instructed Moses to, Moses to go to the rock at Horeb and to strike it with his staff, and he did. And that's where the Lord produced this water from the rock, which is the last place you would expect to find water. It's such an amazing miracle. But listen, what did God produce? Living water that saved in a physical sense. He produced life-saving water from a rock that in a physical sense saved the lives of his people. So keep that... Imagery in mind as we go along. Now, there's also a whole bunch of eschatological references in the Feast of Tabernacles as well. First, it looked forward to the final harvest that the that the Jews everywhere Jews everywhere looked forward to the ingathering of all the Jews that had been scattered across the nations. All of them would be gathered. There'd be a great harvest at the time that the Messiah reestablished his kingdom on the earth. And of course, we know that Jesus will be the focal point of that when he returns. Second, I look forward to a number of biblical prophecies that talked about water, living water flowing from the throne of God in Jerusalem where Messiah would be enthroned as king. And of course, Jesus is at the center of all that. So the Feast of Tabernacles is filled with messianic imagery. All this becomes very important when Jesus stands up in the temple courts to speak. Now notice how Jesus says in verse 38, he says, As the scripture says, now, scholars have looked, and he's not quoting a specific passage or a set of passages. What he's basically doing is summarizing a whole bunch of biblical teachings that come from the Old Testament that speak of this imagery of living water. I'll give you a couple of examples. Zechariah 13.1, On that day, the great day of the Lord, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. Zechariah 14.8, On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem. Isaiah 55.1, God says to his people, Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. Isaiah 44.3, which describes what God will do on the great day of the Lord and brings in the Spirit as well. It says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. So, In the first century in the time of christ all that water imagery was connected to the feast of tabernacles it was well known amongst the jews who lived at that time but there was also an expanded liturgy that had had sort of grown over the centuries right there in jerusalem and involved this this water libation ceremony here's the way it basically looked there was a every day of the feast all seven days the same ritual would take place a priest would, would, uh, would lead a, profe- a procession of musicians and singers down to the pool of Siloam, just south of the temple, and he would take a, a specially fashioned golden pitcher and he would fill this pitcher with water from the pool of Siloam. And then with this procession of musicians and singers, he would come back through the water gate. That's why it's called the water gate and up into uh, the temple. And as he entered the temple courts, there would be three blasts of the shofar, and the priests would all with one voice shout the words from Isaiah 12, verse 3, that says, You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. So this is a big thing. Everybody would have gathered to see this procession going through the streets of Jerusalem. And then the priests would go into the inner courts, into the court of the Jews, and they would come to the altar, and one priest would pour out this water on one side at the base of the altar. And at the same time, a second priest would pour out a pitcher of wine on the other side of the altar. And the point was that these offerings of water and wine symbolized Messiah's future kingdom, which was prophesied by Isaiah that the Spirit would be poured out upon the people and abundance, symbolized by wine, would come to the land. Then there'd be three more blasts of the shofar and the choir of Levites would sing the famous Hallel Psalms, which were, I think it's Psalms 113 through 118, which are specific psalms of thanksgiving and praise. This was a big deal. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, all these pilgrims are in the city and it's, this is just a really important ceremony to them. And all of the imagery and the symbolism was well known. So all seven days, all this fanfare But here's the thing we know from historical sources. There was also an eighth day. On the eighth day, all that would end, but there would be a holy assembly of all the people in and around the temple. Historians tell us that this eighth day wasn't officially one of the feast days. We know that because on the seventh day, everybody took down their shelters. There was no more pouring out of water. But this eighth day was the most important day. In fact, Philo, the great uh, Jewish philosopher from Alexandria, says in his writings that the eighth day was considered the most solemn day of all. And not just for this feast, but he says it was the most solemn day for all the Jews for the entire calendar year incorporating all of the feasts. This was the big day. That's why if you look back in your text in John seven in verse 37, it says Jesus stood and cried out on the last day, the great day of the feast. He's telling us it was that very specific day. So this is the high point of the year. This would have been the most people possible present in the temple courts when Jesus stands up and cries out. All that's very important. So there's a lot going on in this story, a lot more than you read just in those simple couple of verses. Jesus says, come to me, to this massive crowd, come to me and drink, and I will fulfill all of these scriptures. I will cause rivers of living water to flow out of you. And because of what had just taken place those previous seven days, his timing is critical. Essentially, what he's saying is this, Folks, there is no more water to be poured out. There's no more water to be poured out on the altar. I am the water that you're looking for. That's what's going on. Now you understand the frustration of the religious authorities. Jesus says, I'm that water. I will cause this living water to flow out of you. So he's claiming to be the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. And and we've seen this all throughout, right? We have already talked about Jesus as the bread of life, right? He is the symbol of that manna that was given, right, to the Israelites to sustain them in the wilderness. Jesus as the spiritual rock, Paul says, that the wilderness generation drank from. Jesus as the true tabernacle. Jesus as the true temple. And now John wants us to see that he fulfills the meaning behind the Feast of Tabernacles. He is the one who provides living water from the very throne of grace. There's a lot going on here. So at the end of the message, we're going to come back to those couple of verses and do some application. Those are very, I mean, if you want to highlight a section here, verses 37 to 39 are so critical. But what I want to do before we get there is to briskly, that's my word for the morning, briskly walk us through the rest of the narrative here in chapter 7. There's a whole bunch of uh, of important history that we need to just walk through, but we'll do it pretty quickly. What we're going to see in, in the rest of this chapter is pretty much a continuation of what we saw last week confusion and division among the people in the crowd they're 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 confused right Jesus stands up in front of this massive crowd and he makes this startling claim about rivers of living water how do they respond to that I mean try again we try to we try to sort of in our minds I think what would that have looked like in that moment he stands up there again massive crowd And he he makes this this claim to be the fulfillment of this feast. How are they going to respond? Well, there's three groups of people that John mentions in the crowd. Verse 40, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Now, that's the prophet from Deuteronomy 18 that was promised by Moses that a prophet would come in later days. Whatever Jesus said, I mean, we, we have this text of what he said just very simply, but it was received by some as that's the guy we've been we've been waiting 1500 years for this guy that's some of the crowd verse 41 others were saying this is the christ in hebrew the messiah so those are the first two groups there's enough people in this crowd impressed by what jesus just said to where they are lifting him up as this possible prophet and messiah here's the third group still others were saying Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Right? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was or where David lived? So there's a faction here, and I'm guessing it's one of the larger factions, that is just assumed because Jesus was raised in Nazareth because he ministered in Galilee. They're assuming here that he's a Galilean, not from Bethlehem of Judea. And it appears that they never bothered to take the time to actually search out the facts they simply made an assumption in other words they'd done exactly what jesus warned them about just days earlier Do you remember what jesus said stop judging by mere appearances judge righteously judge correctly truthfully but these guys apparently don't have the time to to invest to actually investigate the facts and to find out that he was born in jerusalem so verse 43 is this great summation so a division occurred in the crowd because of him some of them wanted to seize him so you so there's at least a portion of the crowd that is so angry at what he said because of the wildness of his claim to be the fulfillment of tabernacles that they want to grab hold of him so you see all this division now i think it's worth noting here that while the world doesn't think of jesus as a divider in fact if you ask the average person who's never really read the bible just gotten sound bites what will they say? Oh, Jesus is this really nice guy, right? Just, he's all about love and peace and all this other stuff, but here and in so many other places, we see that when Jesus makes claims about himself, it necessarily divides people. The truth necessarily divides. Now we shouldn't, as Christians, we shouldn't be obnoxious about that, but when we simply speak truth, even humbly, we have to expect that the truth is going to naturally divide some. By the way, this was prophesied at his birth, right? How many of you guys remember the story of Simeon from Luke chapter two? Jesus comes to be circumcised on the eighth day at the temple and Simeon, this old man who'd been hanging around the temple forever, looks at Mary and says what? Here's here's the quote. He looks at Mary, you can imagine Mary's eyes getting big. This child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. So early on, eighth day, there's a prophecy of division that will come because of this child. Jesus then confirms that later in Matthew 10. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword that will divide even families based on who he is. By the way, not much has changed in that. Time doesn't change this. Time doesn't change the human condition 2,000 years later. Whenever we speak of the full truth about who Jesus is, People are going to be confused. People are going to be divided. Why? Because they're fallen, right? Because of their nature. People still want to believe what they want to believe based on what? Based on their personal desires, based on their personal uh, presuppositions. And, And many of them aren't going to be passionate enough about the subject to go out and do the research, right? To figure out the facts about Jesus. They'll listen to somebody on TikTok or Twitter or whatever. Or they'll, they'll, they'll read something somewhere and they'll, and they'll come to a conclusion. They just don't have the time to invest in knowing who Jesus is. So they fall into the same trap as so many in Jerusalem that day. They make assumptions and they're wrong. They don't judge righteously. They judge by mere appearance. They judge superficially. That's why we as Christians need to build relations, relationship with, with lost people so that we can explain more, so that we can dig in with them because they're not going to get it from the world. Have you noticed this? People are not going to get the full truth about Jesus from the world. It's up to us. It's up to us. Okay, so let's keep moving. Look at verse 45. Now remember, we talked last week about the temple guards. You guys remember this? The Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel, had this temple guard that was sort of their personal security service. And so as Jesus is saying these outlandish things in the temple courts, they sign an arrest warrant and they send the temple guard to go get him, but things didn't work out as planned. Look at verse 45. The officers, or this guard, came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and by the way, they show up, and Jesus is not with them. Jesus is not in handcuffs. (laughs) And they, the Sanhedrin, said to them, "Why why did you not bring him? And these officers answered, this is amazing, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. What an interesting scene this is. I know we have law enforcement officers here at Oak Hill. Can you imagine? You're sent to arrest somebody, and you come back to your commanding officer, and you say, can't do it. <laughs> I've just never met a guy like this. I just I couldn't arrest him. I just couldn't do it. I mean, you're in for a tongue lashing, right? So how did this happen? Well, we don't know the details, but I picture it going this way. These, these poor guys, they, they march up into the temple courts. They're, they're just doing their job, right? They're just... Poor schlubs doing what they're called to do, right? This is they're they're serving in that season in, in the temple. Remember, these are not pagan strongmen; these are Levites. Remember, the Levites were the tribe that was given responsibility over the temple grounds, and just these guys happen to be for whatever reason picked them out and said, "Well, your job in the temple courts is to be the police force." They're like, "All right, I'll do this," but but they're, so they're not they're not who we might we might picture big, you know. uh, neanderthal guys who are just not thinking no these are levites these are these are these are jews the key to understanding this is these guys would have been around teaching all the time they monitored the temple grounds they would have heard rabbis teaching all over the place they're teaching about this teaching about that but on this day they're working their way the crowd must have been massive again it's the biggest day of the year they're you can imagine they're trying to fight a path through the crowd and as they're doing that they're there there's no way they're they're not hearing jesus Speak. He's crying out above the crowd. And something comes over them as they, you, again, I, I'm just, I'm surmising. They get to the front, and they're listening, and they're just, they're mesmerized. And they find themselves just standing there as part of the crowd, listening to him. And for whatever reason, I don't know the work that God's doing in their heart, but they can't arrest him. Now, now does that mean that we know that they understood who Jesus was? No, we we don't know. We're not getting given that information. We don't know if they put their trust in Jesus. We don't know anything. All we know is this. They come back and say, never heard anything like this before. Never seen a guy like this. And so when they come back empty-handed, here's what happens. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, you have not been led astray, have you? Or you've not been fooled too no one of the rulers or authorities or pharisees has believed in him has he so let me translate that for you you idiots (laughs) you let him fool you are you serious and this is exactly the type of response that you would expect from a group of prideful pampered power hungry elites in that society in fact i always go back to this picture i mean i like i like i like to see pictures of things to sort of set the tone That's what we're talking about. Pompous, pampered, prideful, and a desire for power. All those Ps. So rather than asking the guards, and this would have been the right thing to do, hey guys, what did you hear? You know, why? What caused you to come back here without him? I mean, heaven forbid they actually learn from somebody else, right? But they can't, they're too prideful. Instead, these austere men in all their religious garb look down their noses. At these Levites and try to shame them they say in effect look around all of the scholars and all of the spiritual authorities have rejected this man so what's wrong with you that's basically what they say in other words stay in your lane and stop thinking just listen to us it's rough isn't it and they do it so arrogantly look at verse 49 They say, but this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. So they go from labeling these guards as fools to making this sweeping statement about the entire crowd of Jews who have come from all over the world to celebrate the feast, and they call them just a bunch of uneducated, unspiritual rubes, cursed by God. And this lines up. I mean, if you look at outside historical sources, outside the Bible, you find that this is true. The, the religious establishment in Jerusalem had great contempt for the average, ordinary citizen of Israel in that day. They saw them as, as those things, uneducated, unspiritual. They failed to keep the law, as they did, of course. The sad thing is, by virtue of their position, God had put them, put them in a position to be shepherds over Israel, They should have cared for the people. They should have taught the people. They should have bound up their wounds. But they did the opposite. Hundreds of years earlier, Ezekiel had already rebuked men just like this. How many of you guys have read Ezekiel 34? Every faithful pastor has agonized over Ezekiel 34 because it is so gripping. I'll just give you a few verses from it because it's powerful. It's a chapter all of us should look at. Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. You go into ministry to feed yourself, watch out. They're feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat wear the wool, butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. Wow. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And you ask yourself, how is it that the Sanhedrin, how is it that the Pharisees of Jesus' day didn't see that they'd become exactly, exactly what God had warned? It's stunning. Okay, back to our text in John 7. Why are they acting like this? What's going on? F- friends, listen to this. This is true of us as well. When human beings are put under stress, the truth about their hearts comes out. These men are under great stress. They can't, Jesus they see as an enemy. He's somebody that's undermining their traditions and they can't find a way to grab hold of him and they're under great stress. They see their power slipping away and when we have a fear of loss, truth about who we are comes out. We can't fake it anymore. The mask doesn't fit. And all of the sinful feelings that we have come gushing out. That's what's going on here. Their contempt for the people of Israel comes out. And they're not done. Look at verse 50. This is where the frustration really boils over. Nicodemus comes back into the picture. Our guy, right? Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus before, being one of them, that means the Sanhedrin, said to them, to his fellow scholars... Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? So what we know about Nicodemus at this point is only that he has great respect for Jesus, but he's clearly concerned about the irrational hostility of his fellow religious leaders. And he shows courage here in standing up to the to the group. He says, hey guys, hey, time out. Take a deep breath. We haven't, we haven't given this man due process, have we? I mean, doesn't the law tell us that we should at least hear from him before we just grab him and execute him? And his point is this. These guys claim to be lovers of the law, but here they are breaking the law right in front of Nicodemus. And he calls them out on it. But look how they respond in verse 52. They answered him, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So, Rather than, again, taking a deep breath and stopping and saying, here's a fellow scholar, one of the great teachers of Israel, maybe we should dig into this a little bit more, ask a few more questions, they snap back at him. Oh, are you one of them too? Are you one of his followers now? Are you part of his clan? Are you joining that side now? Wow, the defensiveness, right? They demean him. It's an arrogant thing. It's the thing that arrogant people tend to do. Have you found this out when you're talking to them and you're trying to, you're trying to break through a little bit, but they're so prideful? What do they do? Rather than address your, your objection or your question, they launch an attack, right? Because they don't have ideas. All they can do is be personal now, and they attack you. And This is what they've done to Nicodemus. By the way, not only is their question out of line and, and, and motivated by blind rage, they're factually wrong here. This is the really stunning thing. Yes, prophets have come out of Galilee. Jonah, Jonah was from a town just a few miles away from Nazareth. We know that to be true. Nahum was from Capernaum. Elijah was from the Northern Kingdom. I mean, there's all kinds of examples. So they're so enraged, they're so out of control right now that they're not even factually correct about their own religion. So this is a good lesson for us. We can learn something from this. The supposed experts out there, the ones that will try to shame you or demean you, Right? The ones that uh, wield power and celebrity who wear the garments of education and have all the little letters after their names. Oftentimes, when you challenge them or you ask a question, they're more concerned about their image and holding on to the power that they have than seeking truth. And so oftentimes what they'll do in order to silence you, to get you back in line, is they will mock you or they will rationally claim things about you, something that, that has nothing to do with the issue at hand. So I tell you that As things get darker in this world, that's going to happen to us more often as Christians. Be aware of it and don't be intimidated. Speak truth. Amen? Amen. All right. So that ends the the chapter about, how many of you guys, look look at verse 53 in your Bibles. Does it look really weird? All right. I'll explain that next week. I promise. It gets really strange. Going over into chapter eight, we'll explain that next week. Well, let's stop there at 52. All right. Let's do some, Let's go back to verses 37 and 38. These are really key. This, this, I mean, the, the narrative is, is interesting to look at. The history matters. But let's look at these key verses. Let me make four observations that come out of these couple of verses, and we'll do them quickly. Here's the first one. Ooh. Thanks, Kyle. Boom. Four important observations. Number one, note the universal nature of the gospel invitation that Jesus gives. As Reformed believers, we sometimes forget this, right? We're, we're all about particular redemption here at Oak Hill. But the gospel call is universal. We have to make sure we know that. Imagine, imagine the grace in this scene, by the way. This is Jesus knows the hearts of the crowd, doesn't he? We've seen this all over, the, over and over again, Jesus knows their hearts. Most of the people in this crowd have rejected him, he knows that. Many are mocking him, some of them want him dead. And, And in spite of that, the very Son of God stands up with His hands open to the people and He cries out to them. And He extends an invitation of grace to them. Even to His enemies who want Him dead, He says, come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. Anyone, He says, anyone is about as broad a word as you can get. Anyone can come. It's a universal invitation. All may come. We got to remember that as Reformed believers, right? But observation number two, there is a condition assigned to it. The invitation is broad, anyone, but it's also narrow because Jesus adds that one important word. What is it? Thirst. If anyone thirsts, that's the one condition. Before, Je- before anybody can come to Jesus and drink, he or she has to realize that he or she is thirsty for God, thirsty for righteousness. Righteousness. Now, we know, because we understand soteriology, that it's God that, that makes them thirsty, right? He draws some to himself, and he makes them thirsty. But that thirst has to be real. They've got to be thirsty. We see the same kind of language all over the Bible. Isaiah, again, come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. The psalmist, famous verse, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for the living God. David cries out in Psalm 63, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. That's our world. That is our world. But here's the problem. As I said earlier, everybody is thirsty for something, but some people don't recognize it. They don't even, they're literally stumbling through life, and they don't realize that they're just running around trying to slake their thirst. It's not even on their radar. They're just feeling and doing They don't realize it at all. Others are just, they know that they're thirsty. They're just looking to slake that thirst in all the wrong places. John Piper is famous for having said this, and I think it's a brilliant quote. He says, the hardest work in ministry is not getting men saved, it's getting them lost. That's an interesting quote. The hard work is getting people to see that they're actually lost apart from Christ. They've got to get lost first. They've gotta be thirsty, but once that's settled, the easy part of ministry is then to say, oh good, you're thirsty? Let me point you to the one that can satisfy that thirst. That's the easy part. The hard part is getting them lost. So we gotta know that. Third observation. The response that's called for is very, very simple. Drink. Spurgeon, in his commentary on this verse says, any fool can drink. It's true. Jesus keeps it as simple as can be. He doesn't add anything to it. By the way, what does drinking mean here? Well, it's the parallel that you see in verse 38. He who believes in me. Drinking is believing. Believing is drinking. Right? It's trusting in Christ alone. But Jesus didn't stand up there and go, look, if anybody is thirsty, come to me and drink, and then I've got a bunch of assignments for you. Right? You got to do some other things as well. You got to do this ritual or you got to go to this religious service or come to me and drink and then go out and do a bunch of good works. He doesn't add anything to it. So we talked about this a few weeks ago. What matters is, is not just coming to Jesus but appropriating him personally, taking him unto yourself, trusting him, clinging to him, both now and for all eternity and using this water imagery that... The best way to think about this is you you can be walking through a desert and dying of thirst and you come to a beautiful stream of water and that's fantastic. But if you don't actually drink from it, it doesn't do you any good. So come and drink, appropriate Christ personally. Don't just go, wow, that's a brilliant teacher or wow, he's a really good guy. No, appropriate him, trust him, cling to him. So the summary here is the breadth of the promise is as wide as humanity. The condition of the promise is that you have to be spiritually thirsty. And the simplicity of the promise is that all you have to do is believe. What, what an amazing message, right there in the temple courts. Now look at verse 38, Jesus continues, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, remember he's summarizing the scriptures, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. What, what's the first image that pops into your head? Whatever it is, it's probably beautiful, right? When I was a kid, I'm dating myself now. When I was a kid back in the 70s, Coors, the beer company, you know what I'm, some of you know, Ross is like, yep, ran this, this series of commercials that changed beer. It changed beer sales forever, right, Scott? And, and the picture... <laughs> I don't drink Coors for the right. yeah. <laughs> No cores over here, boy. Sorry, man. Rocky Mountain Springwater. Their commercials were all these pictures of beautiful water flowing from the Rocky Mountains, crystal clear water, and everyone. Oh, and, and they made it look like that's what their beer was actually made from, which is hilarious, right? But who wouldn't want their heart to look like that? Clean, clear rivers of living water flowing in it and out of it. What a beautiful picture that is. But I want you to see here where Jesus says that river of living water collects and pools. In your innermost being, he says. That's where it collects and pools. Now, that word in the Greek, koileia, literally means belly. Jesus could have used cardia. He could have talked about the heart, but here he chooses to use this word belly, this inner part of man. And scholars have wondered, why not just say the heart, Jesus? Well, I think that what he's using that image is because it's a reference that men and women, we crave things from our guts, from our bellies. We want to satisfy things. And the point is that when a person comes to Jesus and drinks, rather than craving earthly things in our bellies, that person's cravings are going to be satisfied in what he points to in verse 39, the indwelling spirit of God. That's the truth. Our bellies crave all kinds of things. If you come to Jesus because you're spiritually thirsty and you drink and you appropriate him, now those cravings in your gut, in your belly, will be satisfied in a life led by the Spirit. Now, I'm really tempted to launch into pneumatology here and to talk about the Spirit, but John has so much to say about the Spirit, I'm going to save that for another day. We're just going to... I hate, I hate going right past things like this, but I have to for time's sake, but we're gonna come back to the spirit, but understand that's what he's pointing to. That's why John says he was speaking of the spirit. So all this talk about living water, John is saying, hey, it's because of the spirit. We'll get back to that at some point. Let's keep going. Observation number four, and we'll be done. Boom. The resulting river of living water flows out to others. This is so good. From your innermost being jesus says will flow this river what's implied there is not just that the living water collects and pools in you when you go oh this is so great i've got the holy spirit it's that it will flow out of you rivers that just stop and don't flow out what happens yeah things die in them right the dead sea in israel water comes in water doesn't go out what happens it gets salty and everything in it dies so there's got to be intake and there's got to be Ingress, egress, intake, outtake. What, you know what I mean. In and out. What, what's the word I'm looking for, Adam? Thank you, outflow. Very good, okay. No plumbers in the house. Okay, um, so listen. This, and this idea of, of rivers of, fl- of flowing water in you that flows out, it flows out to everybody, both believers and unbelievers. This is so important because the world we live in is parched and dry, isn't it? It's a barren desert, So we need to be channels of living water out into the world. That's the picture that's being drawn here for unbelievers, right? Channels of life. So that people see it and go, wait, I'm thirsty, why aren't you? Well, let me point you to the one that has slaked my thirst and can slake your thirst as well. But that river of living water has to be shown to the world. It has to come out of you. And it can't be forced, it has to be natural. Why? Because you're abiding with Christ. It naturally overflows into the lives of people around you. That's the picture we have here. God's people should be acting as channel. I remember back in February I used this phrase, and it's rare when I use a phrase and go, well, I really like that. Usually I'm like, that was terrible. But this one I really liked. Every Christian life should be a patch of green in a land turned brown. We should water it. The flowing rivers within us should flow out and make things around us green. So that starts with unbelievers. That's the world. That's our mission. But also to our fellow believers, especially here in the local church. We're called to be filled with the Spirit, to be satisfied in Him, and then to refresh our brothers and sisters. I mean, honestly, ask that question in your heart. Am I a refreshment to other people in this church? How so? It's a really important question. Too many Christians, again, haven't understood this rightly. They've become like the Dead Sea. They're getting poured into all the time, but they're not pouring anything out. As I said, in the Dead Sea, everything dies. It's stale. We don't want to be that. So we want to be not just the receptacles where, God, where water collects in pools, but rivers that keep flowing out to others. How do we do that? Well, I mean, simple things. Praying for one another, right? Acts of care for one another. Acts of service for one another. In words of encouragement. In discipling and teaching others. In being an example to those who are less mature in the faith. There's so many ways that we can pour out into the lives of others. That's part of our calling, to refresh each other. Okay, So here's the final challenge for you this morning because there's a lot in this. We know self-examination is is healthy for the soul, right? Not so that we can just beat ourselves up because there's no condemnation in Christ. We always have to remember that there's grace for every single day, but self-examination is still good. So be challenged by by this passage in your walk of faith. When you read these words about rivers of living water in your innermost being, ask yourself, to what extent is that true of me? To what extent is that true of me? Since I've trusted in Christ, has it been my increasing experience? Because our walk with Christ is a growth process, right? Has it been your increasing experience that ever-flowing, abundant rivers of living water have flowed out of me? It's an important challenge. By the way, if that doesn't describe you at all, you're like, Jeff, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know what this living water is. Well, then go back to the original invitation that Jesus gave. Come and drink. Be saved. Be saved. I mean, that could be true of some of you here this morning. You're like, this is absolutely foreign to me. I don't know what you're talking about. Come and drink. That's what Jesus would say with open hands. Come and drink. Trust in me alone. But if you've experienced moments of that living water within you, you're a believer and you're like, man, I remember some times when, that living water was, I mean, it was bubbling up in me and I was just sharing my faith and I was loving other people in the church. But you're at that point in your walk where you're like, yeah, you know, it's more like a slow-moving creek <laughs> than, a, than a gushing river of, of life in me. It's okay to admit that. It's okay to say, all right, you know, I'm in a dry patch. But don't stay there. Don't stay there. Make abiding with Christ your first priority. That's that's where it has to start, abiding in Christ daily, dwelling with Him each day, finding your satisfaction in Him so that you're not running around trying to build other cisterns that won't hold water. Oftentimes that's why we're dry is because we're chasing after other things. We're we're, we're looking to find our our thirst to to be quenched in places we shouldn't be. And then we're like, I don't understand why this river isn't flowing through me because you're building cisterns over here in things you shouldn't be, in worldly things, in earthly things. Of course it's not flowing within you. So make it your priority to abide with Him first. And if abiding with Christ then is your first priority, then make it your second to wake up each day and walk walk in the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. Ask Him to fill you each day, live with Him moment by moment, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That is the promise we have in Scripture. This living water comes from abiding with Jesus and walking in the Spirit. That's where it starts, but that's not where it ends. Once you're there, as that living water is now gathered up within you, pooled and collected within your innermost being, then make sure you pour it out. Make sure you pour it out. Make sure you become a blessing to others, both the unbelievers and believers. Amen? A lot to learn from here. Next week, I'll explain verse 53. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for... The beauty of this passage, all of this language, Lord, is hard for us. 2,000 years later, we read this, this imagery and we're a little bit puzzled by it. Father, I pray that you will seal these truths to our hearts, that we will understand at a deeper level, that we'll see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament pictures, that we would rejoice in that. We would rejoice, Lord, that we have come to you, that we have, we have drank, and we have believed, and we have trusted in Jesus. May that be the overwhelming sense that we have this morning for every believer in this room, that we are found in Christ, that there is grace for each day. And now, Lord, may we be moved by your Spirit to not be satisfied in just that, but to get up each and every day, to abide in you, to fulfill our mission, to be a blessing to others. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for another chance we have this morning to sing your praises. May you be found in, 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 in true words that fall from our lips this morning as we praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen.